what makes you happy? Interesting thing about that phrase, what makes you happy? You could put a question mark on the end of it and it could be a question. Or you could take the question mark away and it's a statement. This is what makes you happy. That is what makes me happy. That makes me happy. Oh, that makes me so happy to hear that. Right? Like you can, that phrase, you don't have to change the words. You just change the punctuation and changes the whole meaning of things. What makes you happy? So I'm going to tell you some things that make you happy. And it sounds a little bit bizarre that some guy that most of you have never met before would fly all the way from Atlanta, Georgia. And how are you going to tell me what makes me happy? You don't even know me, right? And so it's easy to get skeptical and kind of sit, you know, well, let's hear what this guy has to say. But just know this, like all day, every day, if you turn on the television, if you log on to the internet, there are hundreds of messages from dozens of people you've never met who are constantly trying to tell you this is what will make you happy. If you buy this, if you drive that, if you wear this, if you live in this kind of house, in that kind of a neighborhood, that's what advertising is. This is what will make you happy. And everybody in this room has fallen for that at least once or twice or a thousand times, right? We've all bought the thing that we were just absolutely sure was going to make us happy, and we tend to think that happy is like an on or off thing, right? I am happy or I am not happy, and that there is a thing out there that I could get, and it will make me happy forever, right? We've all fallen for that. Uh, John Ortberg wrote a, a, a funny parable. He calls the parable of the golden arches. We don't even have to refer to the place by name. We all know there is a place that you could go. And when you're a child, they offer you a meal that is guaranteed to make you happy. <laughs> you, you know what they call it? A happy meal, right? <laughs> Creative geniuses. <laughs> There in the advertising, well, it's a meal and it makes you happy. I know, we'll call it a happy meal, right? So, now, um, uh, so could you imagine uh, if a happy meal actually worked? Like, could you imagine if, like, when you were a kid, you got a happy meal and you were just happy for the rest of your life? You never, so that was uh, the premise of the parable of the golden arches. Once upon a time, there was a girl whose parents took her to the shrine of the golden arches. And there she saw an opportunity to buy a combination of food and a little toy that someone in a fit of marketing genius named the Happy Meal. May I have it, please? She asked her parents. I must have it. I don't think I could live without it. No, her parents told her. The toy is a trivial little thing that just enabled the price of this package to be raised beyond what it is really worth. It's not in the budget. We cannot do it. But you don't understand, she thought. She knew that she would not just be buying fries and McNuggets and a dinosaur stamp. She would be buying happiness. And she was convinced that she had a little McVacuum at the core of her soul. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in a Happy Meal. So she explained, I want that Happy Meal more than I've ever wanted anything before. And if I get it, I promise I'll never ask for anything ever again. <laughs> Any parents ever heard that before, right? No more demanding. If you get me that Happy Meal, I'll be content for the rest of my life. And that seemed like a pretty good deal to the parents. So they bought it and it worked. 
in some parallel universe, in some episode of The Twilight Zone that Jordan Peele has not come up with yet, the Happy Meal actually worked. And she grew up to be a contented, grateful, joyful woman. She lived with serenity and grace. Her life, in many ways, was hard. And the man she married turned, into be, uh, turned out to be a louse. And he abandoned her with three small children and no money. And the kids, too, were a disappointment. They dropped out of school, sponged off her meager resources, and eventually left without a trace. And when she was an old woman, Social Security gave out, and she had to live hand to mouth. But she never complained, because when she was dissatisfied with her current circumstances, she would close her eyes, and she would remember that day when she received that Happy Meal with a little dinosaur stamp. She kept it in her pocket, and she would reach down and fumble around with it, and it would remind her of happier times. And uh, she would remember that Happy Meal, and she'd say to herself, oh, what great joy I found there. And just as she had predicted, it brought her lasting satisfaction, and she was grateful for the rest of her life. Does that ever happen? Does that ever happen to any of you? Does it ever, life ever work out like that? Of course it doesn't, right? You would think that after a while, children would catch on, but they don't. And uh, that, that, that children would say, you know what? I had a Happy Meal once, and it didn't work. I'm not buying into any of this ever again. They would abandon the whole premise, right? But instead, we just grow up, and instead of growing out of that kind of thinking, our Happy Meals just get more expensive. And we think, if I can get that house, then I'll never ask for anything ever again. And then you get in that house. I, 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 seriously, I spent time with a friend uh, just this weekend, lives in a 7,000-square-foot mansion of a house outside of Phoenix, Arizona. Swimming pool, hot tub, an acre of land. It is amazing. We had a huge birthday party for him uh, the other night, and, uh, and he, I looked for him. I couldn't find him. He was sitting by himself outside with his feet in the pool, and I walked out there, and I said, what's going on, man? He said, this is the fourth party I've thrown since I moved into this house, and I regret every single one of them. My electric bill is through the roof. People come to my house, and they trash it, and they don't even take care. Like, there's a big coffee stain on my rug right now. This $2,000 rug, and somebody dumped coffee all over. He said, I hate this house. I wish I'd never gotten into it. That's the way it works, right? Happy wears off. You get the happy thing and you feel the euphoria and then it wears off. And then you have to go get another happy thing to make you feel the same level of euphoria. Right? When you first got a smartphone, when you, I would say an iPhone, but your pastor is weird and he doesn't believe in iPhones or something. I don't know. I was trying to text him the other day and it wouldn't go through. It wouldn't go through. And I was like, why is Tim Spivey the only one of my friends who uses an Android? And why does that not surprise me? Right, like that guy takes more joy in being a contrarian than anyone I've ever met. But remember the first time you got one? And the first time you ever sent a text message, you were like, oh, what sorcery is this? Right? What sort of magic? This is like Dick Tracy stuff. I can talk to them and look at them. And oh, remember my, my mother, 82 years old. Oh my goodness, she can never see this video because I just told everybody how old she is. She's going to kill me. Um, some things we never outgrow. My mother, 82 years old, just got an iPhone for the first time. Uh, skipped, uh, skipped straight to FaceTime. That's all she wants to do now is FaceTime. 
I'll be in a busy restaurant. I'll be in a, on the airplane, and my mother is trying to FaceTime me. Like, Stop, Mom. Text me. Come on. Um, but the first time you ever sent a text message, the first time you ever did a FaceTime call, the first time you were ever on Skype, the first time you ever got on the Internet, I remember the first time I got on the Internet, I was trying to download something. And back then, because I'm old, back then, like, it would just down, the pictures would download like a little bit at a time from the top to the bottom. You remember that? And I was like, what is that? Is it a pumpkin? Is it, what, what, I don't, I can't tell what it is. It's, it was O.J. Simpson trying on the glove. That was the first thing I ever downloaded on the internet, right? But you're like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. It only took 15 minutes for that one picture to show up, right? And now we're like, meh, it took 15 seconds for my eight gigabyte movie in high definition to download, meh, you know, like we... The happy wears off. The things that used to make us happy no longer make us happy. Uh, uh, Louis C.K., who I know is, is in some trouble because of his personal life, but he made an observation about the first time he was ever on an airplane with, that had Wi-Fi. And he was like, this is amazing. I can open my device, connect with something. There's something that goes to a satellite and then beams down and I can send emails, I can watch movies, I can do this amazing thing. He said a half an hour into his flight, the internet went down, and the guy next to him was like, this is total BS, man. Ugh. And he was like, you didn't even know this existed 15 minutes ago, and now you're angry that it no longer exists. That's how fleeting happiness can be. Happiness wears off, and that's the real problem with it. Um, we tend to think that happy has to do with what? But here's something you already know. Happy is more about who than it is about what. Here's how I know you knew that, because when you were a kid and you used to go outside and play with your friends, did it matter that you didn't have the best equipment, that you didn't have the latest and greatest technology? It didn't matter. Because what mattered was not what, what mattered was who you were hanging out with. When you were in high school, some of you are still in high school, when you're in high school, what matters most is not what, but who you have for lunch. Right? What you brought for lunch, that's not what's important. What matters is what table are you sitting at? Who are you sitting with for lunch? What matters most is not what, but a who. Happiness has to do with who? Way more than it has to do with what? You ever uh, been on a mission trip? Ever gone somewhere to, you know, Mexico or South America or, or Asia or somewhere like in a developing nation, right? And you always go there thinking we're going to help them, and then you always come back and realize that they helped you more than you helped them. And one of the questions that you frequently wonder about is, how are these people so happy they don't have anything? And our biggest fear going down there is, is my, is my phone going to work? Will I have good reception? Will I have 5G? Will I have 3G? Will I be able to stream the, the Chargers game? Will I be able to keep up with things? Because God forbid something should happen, and I would be unaware of it for a couple of days. And we look at these people, you look into the eyes of that man, that woman, that child, and you think, there's so much joy in them, and I don't understand it, because they don't have what I have. 
And we can't wait to get back here to get back to our what? But you know what? At the end of your life, I know, because I've been there for dozens of people at the end of their lives, and I have yet to hear a woman on her deathbed say to her husband, Honey, will you bring my shoes to my hospice room? I would just like to spend some time with my shoes. I would like to say goodbye to them before I slip off into the great unknown. No, that doesn't happen, right? Gather the children. Gather the family. Yes, gather my shoes. No. Guys aren't saying to the nurse, uh, would you wheel me out to the parking lot? I want to say goodbye to my truck. I just want to say goodbye one last time to the truck. No. Well, maybe you, but I don't know. But, you know, uh, <laughs> but that never happens. At the end of your life, you're not going to have possessional regrets. You're going to have relational regrets because happy has more to do with who than with what. So, here's what I think. I think God does want you to be happy. But I think that happy has to do with who. And there is one thing. It's not a thing that you can like touch and hold, but there is one thing that every happy person you know has. Like if you if you just sat for a moment and thought, who are the happiest people I know? People who, you look at their circumstance and you think, that would make me depressed for a year if I had to go through what you've gone through. And yet, somehow or other, they manage to stay upbeat. They manage to have this sort of lightness. There's a sense of humor that they have. And you know what every happy person you know has? Peace. Peace. They, they have this just sense of inner peace about who they are. They're comfortable in their own skin. They're not always trying to present themselves as someone they're not. There's not a facade. They're not always complaining, well, I wish this, I wish that, I wish I could lose this, I wish I could gain some of those, I wish, I, you know, I wish, I wish, I wish I weren't the way I am. They are fine with who they are. And Oftentimes, because they're at peace with themselves, they're at peace with other people. Because they're not trying to impress you, and because they don't need anything from you, because they're fine, it allows them to relate with you in a way without all of the things that we tend to uh, put on in order to make ourselves more attractive to someone else. They're at peace with themselves, they're at peace with other people, and oftentimes, they're at peace with God. Now, I don't know what your background is, I don't know where you come from, I, I know we, we, this is going out on the internet, and people are watching with all kinds of different backgrounds, so maybe it's, you know, a, a, a Jewish God, maybe it's a, an Eastern, an Asian God, maybe it's a Christian God, maybe it's... but. But there's a sense of peace that these people have that the universe sort of has their back. And they're comfortable with their higher power. They've made peace with themselves 
and with others and with God. That's the one thing every happy person has. And this is the other thing that I know. Anything that undermines your peace undermines your happiness. If you're not at peace with yourself, if you're not at peace with someone in your life, if you're not at peace with your place in this world and in this universe, you will not be happy. You can't be happy. If you're in a relationship, if you're married, most husbands, it is hard for you to be happier than your wife. It just is. Or with your ex-wife. That can be hard for some people. Right? Or if you're a parent, it is hard to be happier than your kids. If your kids are miserable, it's hard for you to stay happy because they're undermining your peace. And anything that undermines your peace with yourself, with other people, and with God threatens to unravel your happiness. And everything, and, and if I were to ask you your biggest regret, if you were to sit and think about the thing that you carry around the most, the weight that sort of weighs you down the most, what is your biggest regret? It is a decision you made that undermined your peace. It was a relational decision. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have gone there. I shouldn't have behaved that way. And it unraveled the peace that we have amongst each other. Or I compromised my own integrity and I did something that I knew I shouldn't have done and it wrecked my peace with myself. Or I did something that I know my creator has told me not to do and I did it anyway and it unraveled my peace and now I'm not a truly happy person because I carry this burden around with me everywhere I go. Peace is directly related to happiness. And your peace with yourself, your peace with other people, and your peace with your creator will ultimately determine how happy you are. And so here's something that followers of Jesus have discovered. Peace with God paves the way to peace with ourselves, and it equips us to make peace with others. When I'm at peace with God, when I'm at peace with my purpose in this universe and in this world, when I know I was created for a reason, and when I am living out the purpose for which I was created, when I have peace with my Creator, it paves the way for me to make peace with myself, because now I look at someone else and I don't have to envy them, I just know that's not my purpose in this world. I can look at somebody else and say, why can't, it's, rather than saying, why can't I have more of what they have, I am content with what I have because I know I have been created for a purpose and I've been placed exactly where I am, when I am, for a specific reason. As I live into that mission, I make peace with God and I make peace with myself. And then it equips me to make peace with other people. That is the message of Christianity. This is most of the New Testament, by the way. If you're new to Bible reading, most of the New Testament is how to make peace with other people. Since God has made peace with you, 
and wants you to make peace with Him, now that you're in that kind of a relationship, here is how you live at peace with other people. That is most of the New Testament. We make it far more complicated than it needs to be, but at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. How can I be at peace with my Creator? How can I live at peace with myself in such a way that I can make peace with other people? And then I can even go a step further and I can help other people make peace with themselves. I can share that message. Do you want to know how I did it? Here's how I did it. Now, here's how the two of you can make peace amongst yourselves. One time, Jesus had a lawyer approach him and ask the most lawyerly question I can think of. He said, Jesus, you represent God, and there are all of these laws on the books. Jewish people had 633 laws written down let alone all the laws that they would tell other people about how to apply the laws that they had already written down. There's 633 of them. Can you prioritize it? What is God's favorite law? Which, again, a a lawyer, only a lawyer would ask that question, right? None of you are lawyers, are you? I'm making fun of lawyers up here, and now I'm going to get sued. Um, uh, (laughs) My name is Tim Spivey. Um, so, uh, So a lawyer came up to him and asked him this question. What is God's favorite law? And, and Jesus' response is interesting. This guy approached him and said, teacher, because that's what Jesus did for a living. He was a, a rabbi, so this actually in the original language would have said rabbi, but a rabbi was a teacher. So, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, again, 633 laws. How do you prioritize them? How do you figure out which one is the number one Which one is most important? Now, here's an interesting thing about this question that he asked. We don't tend to think of laws as a means to happiness, do we? In fact, we tend to think that laws are designed to be things that get in the way of our happiness. But driving 90 miles an hour makes me happy. Well, I'm sorry you cannot do that. Because getting into an auto accident does not make you happy nor does it make somebody else happy. And the $350 ticket that you're going to get is not going to make you happy. It might make the city of Escondido happy, but it will not make you happy, right? So uh, we don't tend to think of laws as things that lead to our happiness, but, uh, and there's so many different laws that Jesus could have chosen from, but here's what he said, verse 37. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Basically, love God with everything you've got. Now, I can imagine a lawyer saying, Jesus, which is the greatest law? And you would think it would be like, do this, or don't do that, or stop doing this, or start doing that. Pay your taxes. Go the speed limit. Don't steal. Don't. That, that feels like a law. When Jesus' first word was love, I imagine the guy was like, whoa, 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 wait a second, I think you misunderstood the question. No, I mean a command. What's the best command? Yeah, love. We think that's a feeling. And Jesus says, no, 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 that is the greatest command, love. Maybe you're not getting this, Jesus. No, I, I want to know, like, what is the biggest command? This isn't command language, that's relationship language. And Jesus says, yes, exactly. Now you're getting it. Love God with everything you've got. Since God loves you, I want you to love God. 
Since God has gone out of his way to make peace with you, I want you to make peace with God. But Jesus doesn't stop there, and a lot of you know that already, but you haven't thought this thought about these verses through this lens before. He says, love God, and then he goes on, and the next verse he says, and love uh, your neighbor. He says, this is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, which means it's at the same level, which means you can't do one without doing the other, right? The second is like it. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Be at peace with God, live at peace with other people as you are living at peace with yourself. That sounds like happiness to me. But this isn't the way we think we're going to gain happiness. And the problem is, I grew up in church. My dad is a preacher, and so I I was one of those kind of uh, you know, born on Friday in church on Sunday kind of kids. I could, by the time I was 10, I could walk most churches blindfolded. You know, I, the smell of the tile floors and the flannel graphs and all those sorts of things. Like, I grew up in church, and this is what I really believed. I really believed that God was in the way of my happiness. If I thought that's what Christianity was. How not to be happy, but to be right with God. And I thought the whole point was to be miserable here so that I could be happy in heaven. This is what I thought the equation was. I thought I can either choose to be miserable now so that I can be happy for all eternity or I can be happy now and I'll suffer in hell for the rest of eternity. Right? That's what I thought. I thought life comes down to two different things. I can be miserable. I can be happy. I have to choose between being happy here, but then I'll be miserable in hell, or I can be miserable here, but then I'll be happy in heaven. That's what I thought Christianity was. And here's the problem. You will not stay in a system like that for very long. Because if that's what you think religion is, eventually you'll rebel. Eventually you'll give up on it. Eventually you'll find a different system. Is it possible for me to be happy and happy? Do I have to choose to be miserable at some point in time? No, you don't. Th- this is what I thought God was in the way of my happiness. Turns out God is providing a pathway to my happiness. That's what this is all about. I thought God was in the way. God is the way. Which means resisting God is resisting happiness. I guess your greatest regret had to do with breaking peace with yourself, with another person, or with God. And there's one other big idea that this leads us to that we kind of have to talk about, and then we're going to wrap this up. We need to talk about this word called sin. Okay, I know that's a big, like that's a heavy word. I just, even saying it out loud, felt like I just sucked all the oxygen out of the room. So here's what we're going to do. We're all going to say the word together, okay? Just to say it out loud, just get it out of the way. We're just going to rip the Band-Aid off. So on the count of three, we're all going to say the word sin, okay? Okay, thank you. Yes, you're not watching television. You're in the room. I can see you, okay? Right, so on the count of three, we're all going to say the word sin, okay? Okay, one two, three, sin. Some of you didn't say it, I can tell. 
right? Because there's something about that word. We're like, oh, I don't want to talk about that word. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to define sin in a, in a pretty specific sort of way. If you're a Christian, then you can use the New Testament definition of sin, okay? If you're Jewish, you can define it the way your scriptures, we would refer to it as the Old Testament, you just think it's the Bible, um, uh, how your uh, uh, documents refer to it. If you're a different religion, whatever, however you define sin, we can all sort of agree to a general principle. If you're not a religious person at all, in fact, if you think religion is the root of all evil, I understand you've plenty of got ample evidence for that, but... <clears throat> Here's how we're going to define sin for you in the room who are watching online who, who aren't necessarily religious people. Anything you think people shouldn't do, anything you think you shouldn't do, but you do it anyway, sometimes. Anything you think people shouldn't do, but you do it anyway, sometimes, that's sin. Now, you, you're probably thinking, well, I don't think people should tell me what to do, and you're telling me what to do, so you're sinning in church. So, okay, I get it, I get it, all right? But anything you think people shouldn't do, but you do it anyway, that is sin. And so, uh, if with that definition, I want you to see that even by your definition, you're admitting that we all fall short of our standards, we all have standards for what we want in our life, and, and very few of us, none of us, lives up to those standards 100% of the time. We all fall short. That's what the New Testament says. Everyone sins, which means everyone falls short. Everyone has standards, and no one meets their own standards 100% of the time. So we have all sinned. That's sin. And here's what's true about sin. Sin separates. Sin separates. Sin separates me from myself because I know I've violated my own standards of integrity, and so I feel bad about myself. Now I'm separated from myself. I don't feel good about myself because I did something I know people shouldn't do, and I did it anyway. Sin separates me from myself. Sin separates us from one another. The biggest, like the, the most recent relation, relational conflict you've had, I guarantee you it's because somebody did something you think they shouldn't have done. And most of the time it was you. And even when it wasn't you, somebody else did it. Because sin separates. And sin separates us from God. And here's why. It's not because God is arbitrary and, he, and there are certain things he likes and certain things he doesn't like. It's because... When you sin against someone else, you sin against God, because that is someone God made, and that is someone God loves, and when you sin against them, you sin against God. You cannot be fine with me and mistreat my three children, right? You can't mistreat, I have three daughters, my, uh, my oldest daughter turns 20 today, hi Annabelle, um, uh, so uh, she turns 20. I have a 20-year-old, an 18-year-old, and a 15-year-old, and you cannot punch one of my children in the face and then look at me and say, we're cool, right? <laughs> no, we're not cool. So when you sin against someone else, you separate yourself from God because God loves all of his children. And when you sin against them, you've sinned against him. So sin separates. Here's the other thing that sin does. Sin separates by substituting. It substitutes things for people, and sometimes people for things. It separates pleasure for joy. 
It separates the immediate for the ultimate, right? Because there's stuff that I want now, and then there's stuff I want most. And the biggest trouble I've ever gotten myself into is when I choose to settle for what I want now and end up having to say no to what I want most. Say, I want a, a fit body, right, that works for a long time and that maybe another woman might find attractive, right? That's what I want most. But you know what else? I, I want a double-double right now, <laughs> right? And saying yes to one means saying no to the other. You say, I can't say yes to both. So, so sin separates by substituting the immediate for the ultimate. And we all have standards. We all have standards. We could all fill in the blank on this sentence. If I ever blank, I would never be able to live with myself. Don't you have something you could put in that blank? If I ever blank, I, just, I don't think I could ever live with myself. We all have standards, and you end up violating your own standards, and it separates you from yourself, you from another person, and you from your Creator. And one of the reasons why you're uncomfortable in church is because you're carrying something that you know has eroded your peace. And one of the reasons why you're not a happy person is because you're carrying something that you know has eroded your peace with yourself, with other people, and with God. Sin separates. There's a, a verse in the uh, New Testament written by a guy named James, who actually was the, the brother of Jesus. And, uh, and James writes this in James chapter 1, verse 15, about sin. This is what he says. Do we have the slide? I don't know. If we, do we have the slide? Nope, we don't have the slide. Okay, so James chapter 1, verse 15. Give me a second here. I've got to look it up now. I've got it the old-fashioned way, using an app on my phone. <laughs> it's not downloading immediately, so... Oh, here we go. It's because I have an iPhone. Um, this is what James says. James says, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Oh, look, a little baby sin. Oh, isn't that cute? And isn't that what we do with sin, though? Sometimes we're like, oh, it's just a little baby sin. It's so cute to put it in a car seat and you carry it around, you know, in a little you know, a baby Bjorn or whatever, like a sin Bjorn or whatever. And, uh, but this is what it says. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Ooh, well, that escalated in a hurry, didn't it? Sin gives birth to death because it separates and it substitutes. And, and the reason why I feel so passionately about this is because like you, I feel uh, it, there, there are few things that are as heartbreaking as watching someone undermine their own happiness. And it's so easy to see it in somebody else, isn't it? Don't do that. Oh, don't do that. Don't do that. And they do it, and you're like, no. And they're, now they're going to have to spend like a whole year trying to fix that. So easy to see it in somebody else. And it's hard to see it in ourselves, which is one of the reasons why you need to be in community with other people who can see it in your life as easily as you can see it in theirs. So, let me summarize this, and then we'll wrap up, and then we'll move into a time of communion, which, interestingly enough, has to do with all three of these elements we've been talking about. So, to summarize, this is what I want you to see. Since happy is about who, 
and not about what. We, we, we all agreed to that. Happy is about who, not about what. And since happy people are at peace with themselves, with other people, and with God. And since sin undermines your peace by separating and substituting, and since Jesus valued and prioritized peace with God, with others, and with self. Love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Since all of those things are true, and since you want to be happy, the smartest thing you can do and the easiest path from where you are right now to being happy is to become a follower of Jesus. To begin to take Jesus' words seriously. And so I'm not going to walk you through the process of everything that involves. I'm just going to say, Jesus, as much as you think he may have been in the way of your happiness, wants to provide a pathway to your happiness. And you'll only understand that when you begin to take his words seriously. And on one of the last nights he was here on earth, he gathered in a room with some of his closest friends. And they shared a meal together. They'd been eating for a quite some time, and they had some leftovers. And Jesus grabbed some of the bread, and he said, you guys see this bread? I want you to imagine that this bread is my body. And he tore it. That's a violent image. And he gave it to them. And he said, what's about to happen to me, I'm doing for you so that we can be at peace, so that you can be at peace with the God who created you, so that you can be forgiven, which leads to that peace that you feel inside. You can lay that burden down. And now that you're not carrying that burden, you can look on others with compassion and you can make peace with them. And then there was some wine left over and he poured that into a cup and he said, you see this wine? I want you to imagine that's my blood. Oh, such a violent image. But he says, you don't understand. This is a beautiful image because as my blood is shed in the next few days, this is happening so we can have peace. You can be at peace with your creator. You can be at peace with yourself and you can be at peace with other people. I don't want you to be miserable. I don't want you to be unhappy. I don't want you to be riddled with guilt for the rest of your life. I want you to be able to lay that burden down and live at peace so you can be happy. And that's what communion represents. Not just you getting in a little cubby hole, you and God, and you're taking care of your business this way, but as you pass it to people next to you, you're looking at them and you're saying, peace be with you. And peace be with you. And I'm laying my burden down today and I'm making peace with God, peace with myself, and peace with other people. God wants you to be happy and that is the pathway to it. Let me pray for you and then we'll take communion together. God, thank you so much for going to ridiculous lengths, and I mean that literally, going to such ridiculous lengths to uh, make peace with us. Give us the uh, courage to lay down 
the burden that we've been carrying so long, to confess the sin in our lives that separates us from ourselves and from other people and from you by substituting the immediate for the ultimate. Remind us today of the Eucharist, the celebration that this ceremony is. And thank you for today. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.